multiple languages. I don't know how many languages are, are there. And I thought about how many different nationalities we had in our service this morning. There, there's, there's multiple. And I, I found whenever I looked at this, I, my mind immediately went to, to, to the English. Where was the English? So I don't know where your, your eye goes this morning. The reason that Jesus it divides the name Jesus is because it's the only name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. That's the reaction. The reaction is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Jesus pre- presents himself, the Bible presents himself, the Bible presents Jesus as, as uh, th- there's, there's no option. Of, of one way or the other. You can't add him to your life. You, you die, he lives. He can't be just a teacher that you follow. He, he is Savior. He, he can't just be somebody to get you out of trouble. He's Lord. He's, he's God. He's your, he's your master. It's the, the name of God, not in general. The name Jesus. The name of God, not in general, but, but specifics that, that people don't like. The name Jesus removes wiggle room. The name Jesus defines God. It places boundaries on who God is, and it challenges the God that people have created in their own minds. The Bible says that all human beings are created in the image of God, so we're religious people. That's the reason you go into the deepest, darkest jungles of West Virginia or the deepest, darkest jungles of wherever, and you will find people worshiping something. Or someone, Romans 1 tells us that the creation reveals to us that there's something out there and people will take that image in their depraved minds and make a God like themselves. And you become like what or who you you worship. The name Jesus Christ forces people to decide what they believe about Him. Is He God or Is he not? Who is Jesus Christ? The question about the identity of Jesus is a question that that all people must face. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because that's what the Bible says. Look at what Philippians 2 says. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, both those who are in heaven and those who are on the earth and under the earth. That's those who are already in heaven, those who are living on the earth, and those who are in the grave. That every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, every tongue, every knee, every tongue, either in heaven, on the earth, or under the earth, whether alive now or alive until Christ tarries. Every single human being that has ever lived will bow, will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, and they'll confess that Jesus Christ is God, exactly who He said He will be, and they'll either do that in rejoicing under their salvation, or they'll do that in condemnation one day. It's a question. Who is Jesus? It's a question that Jesus even asked his disciples in, in Matthew 16. You remember Matthew 16, verses 13 through 15? Jesus takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, this, 
this center of pagan worship. There's water coming out of the mountain there. There's an underground river. You can still go there today. There's still little idols that are carved into the hillside, and Jesus takes them to this bustling religious center where people are worshiping everything from Pan to the Roman emperor to whoever it is, and Jesus takes his disciples there and asks them this question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they answer some. Some say, you're John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Even then, people had different opinions on, on who Jesus, Jesus is. And then he says to them this question, but who do you say that I am? I really like the way some translations put it. Rather than just saying, but who do you say that I am? That they, they say, but what about you? Who do you say? But what about you? I like it because it's the contrast. Who do people say? And what about you? And in the passage, you know, Peter gives the, Peter gives the correct answer. Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ. You're the son of the of the living God. And people have been confronted with the same question ever since. And if you ask people today, you'll get a lot of different answers. Some people will say Jesus was a good teacher. Bill O'Reilly will tell you that. We need to follow the the teachings of, of Jesus. Others will even say that that he he's the he's the Messiah. But the real question is is what does God say? And Jesus himself claimed to be much more than a teacher. He claimed to be God. And if he was not God, then there's no salvation. A teacher cannot pay for your sins. A teacher can teach you how to live, but can't guarantee that you'll even live the way that he teaches you. But what do you do about how you live before you ever came in contact with the teacher? A teacher can't pay for your sins. If Jesus was a wise man, a wise man can't raise you from the dead on the last day. Do you not find that the that the, the more you're confronted with death, even as a young person, you go to a funeral and you see someone there in the casket? It's an uncomfortable thing if you don't know the Lord. Or the older that you get, the, the, the more that, that you realize that, man, there's this coming this day when, when I, can't, I can't change what's going to I don't even know what's going to happen. And it's, a, it's an uncomfortable thing. If Jesus was a wise man, then, then you have no hope after death. A wise man can't raise you from the dead on the last day. Only a Savior. Only a Savior who is God can do these things. And the fact that Jesus declares, and the Bible declares, and Orthodox Christianity declares that Jesus is God, divides all mankind even today. It's a rock of offense for Muslims. You stand in, in a public place in the middle of Saudi Arabia and say, Jesus is God, and find out how, how divisive Jesus is. He's a rock of offense. It's a stumbling stone for Jews. If you go to Jerusalem today or in certain places, you'll find Christians there. You'll find Jews who, who may even acknowledge that Jesus is Messiah. But you go into a, an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood and they won't even speak his name. It's Yeshu, Amen. spoken in, in derision. It's a foolish myth to the educated. Okay, you Christians can believe in, in Jesus. I mean, he's got some good things for us to kind of govern our lives by, but 
I mean, that whole miracle thing that he's God, I mean, you're just not as smart as us. One day you'll figure it out. It's a foolish myth to the educated. And yet, the Bible doesn't shy away one iota of who Jesus is. And the Apostle John, which is where we're going to be this morning, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, John knows that the fact that Jesus is God is at the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the message. It's the heart of the good news. And he doesn't shy away from it. In fact, he puts the identity of Jesus Christ right up front and on full display. He doesn't, he doesn't hide it in the weeds. <laughs> he puts it, he shouts it from the very first verse. He declares with great force that Jesus is not just some teacher or some, someone who has supernatural powers given by God to reveal a way to heaven. He is God, and He's the only hope for sinners like you and me to reach heaven. He's the Logos who was made flesh and dwelt among men. It's breathtaking, it's stunning, and yet without it being true, there is no salvation. I want to read... In verse 1, verse 18, and then I'm going to come back and focus on one verse, which I think John writes to, to just encapsulate everything. In verse 1 of the Gospel of John, In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Oh, wait a minute, that's Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the, the life was the light of men, and the darkness, and the light shines in the, in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to them, as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of the and of His fullness we all have received grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed Him or declared Him. John's gospel is, is called a gospel written out of time. It's, it was written much later. 
than the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke. And it was written for a specific purpose. The most significant distinction about the Gospel of John is that the deity of Jesus Christ is found in every single chapter of the Gospel of John, and it is, it is with gale force here in the, in the introduction, in this prologue. And John begins his entire Gospel, within the beginning was the Word. And I, I joked about all oh, that's Genesis 1, because that's exactly where the, the Holy Spirit wants your mind to go. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. The eternality of Christ, the Trinitarian position of Christ, the absolute deity of Christ is shouted from the first line. And with that trumpet blast comes the risk and also the, the reward. I mean, think about this. If John was attempting to woo his readers and save the hard stuff for later, he didn't do a very good job of it. I mean, he punches you right in the mouth, right up front. Jesus is God, and that's the risk. Then there's the reward part. But if Jesus is God, and it's fundamental to faith and part of the gospel, and it brings salvation, then, then there's nothing else that John could have done. And the same is true today. God declares to you that His Son was not a man or even supernatural. He was God in, in the flesh. But if you receive God's testimony as true, then, then the reward is that He'll give you the privilege to become children of God. Look at verse 9. This was the true light, which gives light to every man which comes into the world. He's the, he's the creator. He was in the world and, and came into the world at a specific time, and the world was, that was made by him didn't know him. Look at verse 12. But as many as received him, as who was just presented to be, to them he gave the right to become children of God. If you receive God's testimony as true about Jesus Christ, then you can be one of his own. And God's testimony is found in verse 14. And that's the one worst verse that we're going to focus on this morning. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Today, soul is Christus. Salvation is, is by the work of Christ alone. And, and just in this one verse, He gives us three revelations about the person of Jesus Christ. He became flesh. He came to us. And He reveals God to us, all packed in that in that one little verse. The eternal God became flesh. Verse 14, I don't want you to miss the significance of that statement. The Word became flesh. Because it's the difference from every other religion in the world. Uh, last Wednesday night we had an Egyptian brother who was, who was here... And he shared with us a video of the Egyptian Brotherhood. Those of you who were here saw it. And, and he pointed out to us that the difference between Christianity and Islam and either how, even how he was raised as a Christian in Egypt. And the, the uh, Mohammed Morsi, who used to be the president of Egypt, said in this little video clip that, that all of the faithful, all of the faithful following Islam should nurse their children and their grandchildren to nurse them on hate specifically said that. And he said, I was nursed on love. I never heard God was hate. I heard God was, was, was love. My mind went back when I was listening about 
statement, the quote that I've given you before from George Bush's Attorney General John Ashcroft after 9-11, whenever he was asked what is the difference between Christianity and Islam after the planes went into the Trin Towers, he said, Islam is a religion in which God requires you to send your son to die for him. Christianity is a faith in which God sends his son to die for you. It's the epitome of love, isn't it? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And John 14 says, This God became man. This Word, this eternal God, became flesh. Not man becomes God, but God becomes man. Man becomes God is what all of the other religions of the world teach. That somehow you climb your way to God. You you better yourself through works, through knowledge, through sacrifice, through whatever it might be, man becomes more like God. If you want to, if you want to go into the, the religion of, uh, of, of the Mormons, the Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as they say, and as you know, they say, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, because they want to present themselves as normal. You want to follow the Mormon religion? You can become God. You can have your own world. You can have your own planet one day. The whole idea is that you become God. And it's not just Mormonism. It's all the other religions in the world teach that you pull yourself up to to Him. You become more acceptable to God by following the sacraments in the Catholic Church, by praying five times a day, by taking a trip to Mecca, by reaching enlightenment if you are... Buddhism, but listen to what God says. The Word became flesh. God became man, not man becomes God. Christianity declares that God became like man so He could become an acceptable substitute for sinful man. Man is so fundamentally broken that there would be... It's hopeless to climb to God, and many of you tried to do that. And you know that. And the opening phrase has amazing impact when we think about it, but probably even even not the same impact it would have had in, in John's day. I mean, if you would read this in the original language, whether you were Greek or whether you would have, were a Jew, you would have known exactly what John was talking about. The Word, the Logos, became flesh, and that would have been scandalous. The Logos to a Greek is the, is the transcendent wisdom. You, you hear about the, the wisdom of Socrates and... Aristotle. So they would have had this, this transcendent wisdom. The, the Aristotle and Socrates would have sought after this logos. It's what gave the universe order. If you were a Jew, logos in the Septuagint was a word used to explain the entirety of Yahweh's knowledge. It was God's wisdom that made sense out of all things. From the Old Testament, the word of the Logos was wisdom, light, understanding. It was such above human ways, it was distant. It was past fully understanding or finally a finding out. And they would have understood of all of that, packed into that word. You know how when you hear a word, you know the definition. They would have known the definition. The Logos became flesh. Impossible. That's what would have went through their minds. What? And they would have read further and dwelt among us. That would have been scandalous. I mean, how could, how could God, transcended, exalted above everything, take upon Himself creation? Certain sects of, of Jews believed 
in the resurrection, but none believe that God could or even would become man. I can still remember the uh, reading this exegetical insight my first year Greek class from William Mounts. John says the center of who God is, God's life and thought, all that He is descended and entered this world and took up its form, its sarks, its flesh. Sarks is Greek for flesh. In order to be known by us and to save us. Flesh doesn't mean sin, sinful nature like we use it sometimes, our flesh. It means a human form in, 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 in this verse. It means the eternal wisdom of God, robed, cloaked. Eternal wisdom that spoke the world into existence. The, the eternal second person of the Trinity. It's the doctrine of incarnation that we'll get to at Christmas. In prefix meaning in, and then caro meaning flesh. Jesus always was, always was God. But before the incarnation, He didn't possess a human nature. But by the virgin birth, conceived by the Holy Spirit, He humbled Himself. He entered into His creation, took upon Himself human flesh, and now He continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Philippians 2, 6-11 describes it. Who, being in the form of God, thought equality with God was not a thing to be grasped, not to hold on to, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the, in the fashion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of the, of the cross. He's fully God and fully man without sin, is what John declares in verse 13. He was fully God to live a, a perfect sinless life, to do the Father's will without fail. You failed to do the Father's will, and so have I. He was fully man to suffer, to bleed, and die as a substitute, as a sacrifice of, of God. He was, he was fully God to love, to be omniscient, to have mercy, to hate sin. And he was fully man to be tempted in all points like we, yet succeed without sin. What the incarnation declares is that God has not, has not left us alone. He didn't abandon us in, his, in our sin. He came to us. Now look at verse 14. The eternal God entered into his creation. God becomes a man, not man becomes God, and he, he dwells among us. He tabernacled among us, the King James says. A much more apt translation to bring in all of the Old Testament significance. God came to us. He didn't just take on human flesh, he dwelt among us. He didn't just live among us as a superhuman. He presented himself as a humble servant. He lived among His creation. And the word John uses means to pitch a tent or to tabernacle. It's a clear reference to the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Exodus 25 calls it the tent of meeting. Exodus 33, the tabernacle of witness. And in the Old Testament, 
God told Moses he would deliver his people and he would live in their midst. He would give them his law so that an unholy people would know how to live and enjoy a holy God. And he would do that through the nation of Israel, through the, through the, the tabernacle that was there, through the commandments and, the, and the, the sacrifices and clean and unclean. And he would dwell in that tabernacle and he would meet them there and he would meet them in a specific place in the holies of holies and he would meet them specifically at the mercy seat. You understand the symbolism there? You want to get me shouting. (laughs) Think about the symbolism that is in the tabernacle. You know what's in the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant and the Holies of Holies. Inside the Ark of the Covenant is the Ten Commandments, the rod, staff, and on top of that is the the jar, manna. On top of that is, is the mercy seat. And then the presence of God is in the holies of holies above the mercy seat. And the priest comes in on the Day of Atonement and he takes the the sacrificial offering, the innocent animal that was slain for the sins of the people, and the priest comes in and he sprinkles that on top of the mercy seat and that's where God will meet His people. The holiness of God above the mercy seat with the broken commandments inside the ark and the blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat. The atonement is placed on the mercy seat so the holiness of God looks through the blood and does not hold the broken commandments against men and that's where God meets with mankind. And all of that is a shadow of what's going to happen. When God becomes a man... And no one takes his life. He willingly lays it down. And the mercy seat is the cross. And the blood of Christ is shed. And now, when I see the blood, I pass over you. Not the blood of a, of a lamb, but the blood of the Lamb of God. Which is why John says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Where can you meet God? You can meet God at His mercy seat. And His mercy seat alone, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ And apart from the blood, the holiness of God seeing your sin, there is no hope. All of this packed in one verse. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, says God. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and he called it the the tabernacle of, of meeting. God would be in their midst. And look at... Exodus 40, and Moses finished the work, and the the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. John says, in the same way as God was present in the midst of His people in the tent of meeting, Now God is present in the person of Jesus Christ, the very presence of God in the world. And we learn from Him who God is and who we are, just as that system was to teach the Jews who God is and who they are, and that they needed a Savior, Jesus teaches us the embodiment of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ reveals the the glory of the Father. And that's the third point. Look at verse 14. 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld His glory. To, to behold means to study, to be a spectator of something, to comprehend it, to study it. And Jesus, during His earthly ministry, gave a glimpse of the very glory of God. He's God-like. Is He like the God in your head? He's like the God that you see on TV? Is He like the God that, that you read about in, in a book? What is God like? Look at Jesus. Is God kind? Was Jesus kind? You better believe He was. Is God merciful? Was Jesus merciful? You better believe He was merciful. Is there hope? Does Jesus offer hope in the Gospels? His whole life was to seek and to save that which is lost. And someone who's lost can't find themselves, right? Your husband won't admit to you whenever he's lost. He just keeps driving around till he hopes to find himself. But the whole idea of, of someone being lost, if you're truly lost, you can't find your way. And you were lost in your sin, apart from God. And Christ came to seek you and to find you. And Jesus Christ displayed all of who God is because He... He was God. He's full of grace and truth, is what the verse says. He displays to us who God is, and, and we behold Him. As He explains the Father to us. Look at verse 18, because he goes, he goes further. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed Him. He's revealed God in His fullness, just to make sure that that we get it. It's the same thing that Hebrews 1 says. Could have preached from Hebrews 1 this morning. I was tempted to do that. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Read Isaiah and you'll find a lot about God speaking. Concerning Jesus, He has in the last days, you remember the message about the last days? Spoken to us by His Son whom He was appointed an heir of all things, through whom He also made the worlds, being in the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You hear what Jesus said to the disciples? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then they have this discussion. I'm going to go away, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then one of the disciples says, Lord, how, how do we know where you're going? How do we know the way? You remember the verse we all know. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But do you remember what Jesus says to the disciples? He says, have I been with you so long? You've seen me. You've seen the Father. It's a declaration of deity. You, I'm God, is what he's saying. And the real question for people is not who is Jesus Christ. The Bible declares very clearly who Jesus Christ is. He's God. He's God. He's God. The real question is, what about you? 
Who do you say that he is? And if you say, like I did before I came to Christ, before I bowed the knee, before I confessed and repented of my sin, oh yeah, if I'm going to heaven, it's through Jesus. I believe in Jesus. That doesn't save you. That only increases your condemnation because you're saying that you know who Jesus is and you refuse willfully to bow to His Lordship. I prayed for you this morning if you don't know Christ. I prayed for you if you do know Christ, that you rejoice in the truth. But one day, every knee and every tongue, including yours, will bow and will acknowledge exactly who Jesus is. And at that moment, it, it will be to confirm Well, you'll already know. Right now, He's offered to you as Savior and Lord. And you can believe in your heart and confess with your mouth and you can be saved because of Him today. Who do you say that Jesus is? And if you believe who He is, are you willing to repent and bow the knee and say, Lord Jesus, I believe exactly... Who you say that you are, you are. And I believe you did exactly what you said to do, that you did. I turn from all of my sin. And I turn to you. Save me. I will follow you. And oh, you can leave here a totally different human being. Don't you bow your heads. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Do you know Him? If you don't, at the end of this service today, after the parent dedication, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be at the door. You can catch me there. There will be other pastors up here. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to make sure that you have peace in your heart, with Christ. Father, thank you for such a clear word about the deity and saving work of Christ. I pray, Lord, for any person who's here this morning that doesn't know you, I pray that as your Holy Spirit has worked in their heart this morning, that they would yield, that they would repent and believe, that whatever is holding them back, that you would move that out of the way and that you would help today be the day of salvation for them. I pray, Father, for every Christian who's here, Lord, that just needed to be reminded how much you love them and how that it's impossible to out your grace and to be reminded that it's not about us becoming God, it's about God becoming man and then dying so that we might have life and more abundantly. Lord, would you... Would you just help them this morning to start with a clean slate and to seek you because you're worthy. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.